Welcome to the second episode of Junto Club. On this episode, we find a better way to mediate social media arguments. Matt argues against student loan cancellation. We solve the student debt crisis. And we think about how much lead-up time before death we would need before we act self-destructively. For any questions, comments, or hate at Matt, email juntoclubpodcast at gmail.com. This is Junto Club. Junto Club. Welcome to the Junto Club, episode two, where we <laughs> attempt to take inspiration from Benjamin Franklin and yeah. you know, discuss important topics of the day to improve ourselves, but instead we just ramble. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that can be our official intro. I, I imagine that's what they do back in the day as well. That's true. They probably have like these documents that are like all really official, but then half the time in there, they're just like bullshitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. So, so I guess, uh, I guess uh, we'll start with uh, another thing that I learned from by reading his autobiography. Like something uh, I found uh, about conversation. Basically, I think it's a good place to start. Uh, and one thing he he talked about like when he was younger days, right? In ways like maybe nineteen twenty, right? 19 years old and 20 years old, he read a book and then he, in that book, he found something called the Socratic method of conversation when he discussed, like, talk to people, right? So in the beginning, he would, he would talk to very people that, like, naturally, like, other people would be, like, arguing, right? Like, debating, like, say, hey, you know, this is the right way to think about this topic. And then, and then in the Socratic method, he talked, he, he came across that, he, he, and he started using that, right? Basically, instead of, Instead of using the argument and debating, he basically just ask, keep asking the people who is talking to having some kind of opinion. He just keep asking questions, right? Keep asking, keep asking. And he found that very much more useful in a way to sometimes to have the, uh, the, the, the people you're talking to basically question their own assumptions as well, right? So in the end, you know, they might, in a way, you kind of make them... Uh, realize, oh, maybe my, my opinion is flawed or something like that. So I find that very interesting, so useful as well. So I think, uh, Matt, you can probably explain the Socratic method better. So why don't you go ahead? <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate the assumption that I know everything, but that's about, you already got to the limit of my knowledge of the Socratic method. Have you ever, like, like yeah, the basic idea is to just ask people questions a lot. Have you used it ever, Shu? Have you, like, applied it on anyone? Not yet, not yet. But I think uh, over our conversation, I feel like over our conversation, like during our lunchtime, right? Uh, uh, like last past few years, I feel like you were doing that a lot. Like for me, I think I have an impulse just jump to you know, say, hey, uh, this is wrong, you know? But you always ask me, like, why do you think that's wrong, right? So I feel like you use that a lot already. So <laughs> you're a master of that already. So did you, did you, did, did you, were you aware that you were using it or were you using it consciously or just a habit? Probably more of a habit. Uh, I did take a few philosophy courses, but we never explicitly covered the Socratic method, but the, the way the professor's structured class might have rubbed off on me. Oh, really? Okay. So when did you, when did you ever hear the phrase Socratic method? When yeah, you, yeah, I've heard it before. And like I said, I was I was familiar with like the very basic concept, but I don't think I've ever seen like a, like someone break it down specifically or try like 
see an example of like, hey, here's how I'm going to do it. It's just, you know, I'm familiar with the concept of you just kind of ask questions to like challenge them instead of, you know, saying what you believe. Mm. Yeah. I was going to say, I thought you used it more so, Shu. I feel like every time I bring up anything, your first thing is like, why? Or like, what about this? Huh. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe I, I, maybe I, maybe I see Matt doing that a lot. So maybe he rub up on me as well. So I, I don't know. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like Shu just likes playing devil's advocate is the real That's secret. True. He'll argue anything time me and Micah have a consensus on something, he'll just be like, I'm going to take the most absurd position just to, <laughs> to bring a different viewpoint in. No, no, okay. he definitely does that as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Any more thoughts on that? Hmm. No, I mean, I, I can see it being useful just in the sense of like, I mean, it's, I guess, if your questions aren't overly pointed, then I guess it's sort of a way to have people sort of naturally come to say maybe some disagreement within themselves versus just like more abrasively, like you're wrong. So I mean, I guess it can be useful in that respect. Yeah. Shu, here's what you need to do. You need to come up with a Socratic method that works well for like the modern internet like conversation that is like the majority of like people discussing issues these days. Because I feel like the Socratic method requires like a fairly long conversation, right? Because you have to have this like continuous back and forth for mm-hmm. a while. But like, you know, in reality, people are like tweeting replies to each other or like, you know, yelling at on Fox News for like two minutes before commercial break. So how do you apply the Socratic method in those situations? Well, well, for well, I don't think you can apply that to those situations, right? So I guess uh, those are more like they, 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 they were thinking coming into the debate of like convincing the other instead of like they were just like so they are not. I think I guess to use that first, you need to be both coming in need to be very open minded, and even a person that want to use it need to be very open minded. <laughs> Right, of coming into a conversation and try to to learn, basically, right. But if you're not in the in the mindset, it would be hard to do it, right. All right. Well, I, I get. Uh, well, I guess. Uh, oh, I guess you, I. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I need to figure out how to do that in in in, in a modern day uh, social media age, right. So yeah. So yeah, but I guess for yourself, I guess we can always just like instead of uh, be a remote minded just like asking questions like avoid I think uh avoid the, the using the words like certainly and undoubtedly like using using not don't use like a lot of like very okay I believe this you know this is correct you know this is the right thing to do. you say oh I I heard it somewhere and then stuff like that you know be to add a little bit uncertainty into your own whatever your opinion try to convey I guess yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. I always add uncertainty to my opinions 100% of the time. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> oh, okay. So I have a question about your philosophy class. Like, what, what did they teach you, Ned? Um, so I took two. The first one was an intro to philosophy, and then the second one was an ethics course. Mm-hmm. Um, the intro was just I needed a random, like, humanities or whatever elective. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of picked from, like, five or six uh 
I didn't really, honestly, at that point, I didn't know much about philosophy as like a subject, but it was actually a super interesting class because they didn't, they didn't like go through and talk about like old philosophers, like in a history thing. They like briefly kind of covered some basic, like lot, like formal argument logic stuff. And then they just like went through and like covered like really interesting questions. You know, obviously the ones that, you know, like does God exist? Um, you know, things about like, morality things about like is reality like objective or subjective and like just these other such questions that were just fun to discuss mm. and uh yeah it was just a really fun class if you not that anyone's actually going to listen to this but if you're like i need a bullshit class and then there's like an intro philosophy elective i would recommend it the ethics one was more just to cover some other bases it wasn't as good focusing on ethics entirely because i mean you can only go so deep into ethics until it's kind of like you know, ethics is subjective, you know, whatever, utilitarianism versus deontology. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Hey, it's the, yeah, using the appropriate toolbox at the appropriate time, right? Yeah, don't get into that, Mike. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, and I also solved the problem of uh, how to have better civil online discussions. Um, so you have a virtual avatar next to the uh, communication window that shows you if you're behaving poorly or behaving well. And so you're, you're self-reflective. And the company that for, uh, makes that should cite uh, a thesis that appears on mobilerobotics.com or whatever it is. <laughs> MobileRobotLab.com. Every, every tweet will just have like an emoji face representing like how that tweet makes the emoji feel. Yeah, that's right. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> uh, so, so what, what do you mean by the two, two kids? Like you was Mike was saying, he's getting into the like ethical governor stuff. Um, so hypothetically, people listening to this don't know, but like the mobile robot lab we were all a part of did like research and like ethics and like re- like putting ethics into robots. Uh, and the part of the search research was like you could consider different ethical frameworks and how like you might apply each one to a robot, right? So like uh, utilitarianism is like you try to estimate some cost of actions and like pick the best one. Deontology, you know, you have rules that say like you can never do, like this is off limit, that's off limit, like you must do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Is that basically accurate, Mike? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a TA for one, like an ethics course at Georgia Tech. And yeah, I mean, basically it's like, I, so I mean, there is literally just like the, idea that ethics is totally like just rel- like relativistic to like culture or whatever and you know the argument against that is like no like we have these sort of i guess more like objective ethical frameworks but maybe e- like uh, one isn't like appro- as appropriate in a certain context as the other so i mean like for example like utilitarianism is often what's used by companies because essentially you're just converting everything to dollar signs and so a product that essentially is going to cost more than it earns is unethical in the sense of like if it's dangerous uh like you're going to get sued for like 10 million dollars for every like life it loses or whatever so mm-hmm. So you're able to convert things more easily and make an ethical decision. Whereas I guess like day-to-day interactions, maybe deontology is, I guess, the better framework. So because, mm. you know, you don't want to use people to as like, or you want to treat people as ends in themselves or whatever. whatever there. So you're saying you never applied Kantianism into a robot? I don't believe so. <laughs> that would be an interesting <laughs> paper there. 
Yeah. All right. So talking about our philosophy, going back to that a little bit. So recently I heard a quote from Peter Thiel. Uh, he says, engineering is the opposite of education, right? So, so since we are all engineers here, so what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> Did he explain that more? Well, yes, I guess. So, so we're talking about philosophy, right? You took the philosophy class and you actually teach you how to, uh, uh, like, talk to people, right? Engineering is very, it's not the skill, right? It's, it's a trade almost in a way. So it doesn't really educate people, right? It just like teach you a skill and then you go out and find a job, right? And it doesn't really teach you how to think, even though, even, even though, even though I gone through whole, uh, and my <laughs> PhD, you know, uh, undergrad, you know, something called like, uh, you know, everybody thinks, oh, uh, engineer, I really good at analytic thinking, but I, I had no idea what analytic thinking means, even though I went through all these schools, right? So basically, I think he's, he, since he, he major. He was philosophy major. He never. He never done engineering, but he's philosophy major, and he went to law school, became a lawyer, right? But still, you know, he was able to create. He's in the like, you know, the top tier of the Silicon Valley. You know, he's a technology right startup and stuff like that, right? So he's a. So I mean, so that's his point, right? He's like educate. Uh, engineering is almost opposite of education. Where philosophy, because philosophy teaches you how to think, where engineering doesn't really do that, right? Yeah, no, I I will agree with that maybe halfway. Yeah. So philosophy does try to teach you how to think, like the right way to approach that stuff, kind of. And and I think it's it's kind of like philosophy is really great to teach people at like everyone, like I I would almost argue almost everyone should do some basic philosophy to learn like the basics of like logic and argumentation and trying to think. But it's long like the impacts of like deep philosophy aren't really that great like there's like at some point that once you study philosophy enough you're just like you quickly get to the point where like okay people are kind of arguing over things that don't really matter to real life at all mm-hmm. like there's not going to be any impact well engineering is sort of the opposite like the impacts of like good engineering are massive on humanity but i agree i agree that engineering doesn't explicitly teach you how to think analytically like i never had a class that you know said like this is what we're going to do you know in an engineering school but i would argue that you learn it implicitly through the fact that most of your classes involve a similar kind of like breaking down of problems, trying to like find the core, like, you know, assumptions, the constants, you know, and just like a a methodical process that, and because I've seen, heard this exactly, like they, they, you know, people like think like an engineer because like once you do enough of that, you kind of sort to think and approach problems a certain way based mm-hmm. on how all your classes have done it. But yeah, they don't tell you like, this is how to approach problems in general. It's just, you do it in one class and then another, then another, then another. So I don't, I don't think it's entirely right. I just think it's more implicit. Yeah. I mean, I think like my CS2 class in college was very much like, I guess, sort of structured to t- try to help you. Like as Matt says, it was more of, I guess, implicit than explicit type thinking, but or type learning, I should say, but yeah, it was very much about like algorithm design and like thinking algorithmically. So like, how do you sort of, yeah, basically step one, step two, or I guess describe a problem and then break it down into, I guess, sub problems and then decide the steps to execute um, the solution for those. So 
I do think computer science um, by its nature is just closer to like a more pure conceptualization of like, you know, it's, it's computation, right? So it's much closer to just like, here's like a pure problem that you have to solve all engineering since it deals with real stuff does tend to focus more on like, yeah, those details. It, it's less abstract problem solving compared to computer science. So I think computer science probably does a better job, but. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so what does uh, analytic, analytic, analytical thinking means to you guys? What does it actually mean? Like, like, yeah. You wanna go first this time, Mike? Sure. I mean, I, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, I'm just, I feel like I'm being just very literal here. I mean, I feel like it's uh, thinking that in which you, I guess, take a step back and do some type of, uh, uh, some type of analysis to solve the problem. Like, or, you know, I mean, I guess you take a step back, use the data and evidence available to you at a given time to make the most informed, educated decision. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, this is an interesting question because it is something people bring up, but I've never heard like defined explicitly. But um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's analytic thinking is really about being able to break down a problem into the appropriate parts. Because like pretty almost any complex problem, you know, it's really, there's going to be like multiple parts to it that are, and, and like finding the right way to break down and frame things is like what leads you to like a good solution, right? Because I mean, that's what like all of our PhDs do, right? We like start with some research question on a topic and then we look at how we want to like break that down and view that problem so often that's like finding independent components you know or breaking down like possible options right like if you're trying to engineer something like you might realize okay like there's actually only two fundamental ways we can approach this and then you try to figure out you know the pros and cons of each or things like that so it's it's all about piecing it, yeah, I'm going to say breaking it down for the eighth time, but it's all about breaking it down into like bite-sized pieces that you can actually like deal with. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, uh, sounds like, I think both of your answers kind of uh, combine it would be in a good way to thinking about and thinking. Like, I met you talking about like break it down, right? And um, I think Mike's is more about like, once you break it down, you have a small piece. And you come up with a hypothesis in a way and try to testing it evidence and then say if, if this is the correct answer and then you iterate a little bit but keep, keep testing right you know in, in a way right and then so it's almost like breaking down and then apply scientific method in a way right breaking down and look at the data yeah that makes sense yeah, yeah. okay slightly related i would just I think personally that about 95% of basically all subjects in all fields are actually pretty simple. It's just a matter of like learning enough stuff. Like as complex as computers are, if you go down to like each and little every each little piece of how a computer is made, like everything from like the logic gates or you know code for the operating system most of that's all pretty simple there's just a lot of it right it's just the built up of a lot of really small simple parts there are very few ideas that i have found that are like truly like a deep idea like a very deep complex idea that you can't like separate it's just fundamentally complex and most of those are in physics so like unless you're like getting into like theoretical physics 
you know, Maxwell's equations of electrodynamics, things for quantum mechanics and stuff. Then you get to stuff that's like generally like equations that have like massive deep impacts that you can't just like separate out. But almost everything else seems to be fairly simple. It's just, there's just a lot of it and you have to take it one step at a time. I see. So you can, it's not, you can apply that and thinking like break it down, not just to solving a problem. You can apply it to learning as well. Okay. And that's nice. So it's like, I think I did her and I, Recently, people are talking about how do you approach learning like cryptocurrency, right? Bitcoin, or how do you, if you want to understand it, what do you do, right? So you basically break it. Uh, I think the suggestion is that you break it down, go go back to the fundamentals. Now you start with like, instead of like, stop, start with like cryptocurrency, right? You start with like cryptography, right? In the beginning, right? How do you encrypt stuff and decrypt stuff? That's basically in the fundamentals of that. You break it down into small pieces and then build it up. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, like with something like Bitcoin, like it's hard if you just try to jump in and you're missing, like, I guess the, like the foundations, but you know, once you yeah understand all the tools and stuff it's built on, then it's like, it's an interesting idea, but it's not something that's like mind blowingly complex to understand. You're just like, Oh, that's a clever way to use this stuff but you got to learn the stuff it uses first. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was reading about it, I was like, okay, I, that means I need to understand what actually is money, right? What the heck is money, right? So that's like go way back. That's uh, like thousands of years. Like where did that come from, right? Yeah, so cool. All right. So I think we talk about another thinking philosophy. So I think let's talk about, I guess, education, I guess, <laughs> you know, what, what is education, right? Is education trying to teach you all this and all thinking philosophy or just getting you a job for you guys? Okay. Or maybe, I guess, that's kind of leading into, like, actually, or, or we can just go toward, like, talking about a debt cancellation that Matt needs to go to France. Yeah. All right, well, first, are you going to make an argument for debt cancellation, Shu? Yeah. We'll skip the debt cancellation. Then. We don't need to talk about education today. But yeah. you, go. you go first. For me, I definitely pro it because I have, I, have, uh, I have some debt, I guess. I want it to be canceled. So personally, selfishly, yes. Also, I think it's good for the society in general, right? It's a, it's a, it's a good way to put the money back into the society. So if I don't need to pay the, pay the, uh, pay the debt, right, the student loans, and then I, I can just put it back in the society. Also, I guess, uh, yeah, that, that's my argument so far. <laughs> so do you think, so if the government's going to, like, give money out to sort of stimulate the economy, do you think that cancellation is the best place it could go to? Then again? Like, if the money's going to, like, if our goal is to stimulate the economy, right? We want the government to give out money to stimulate yeah. the economy. Do you think that cancellation is the best place it could go to? Uh, yeah, because because uh, the people that who are already having the debt, they are already educated, right? So they, you know, they are already getting used to the uh, the luxury style of the enrichment of college, right? So they already get they so they cannot they they won't you know be able to save as much, right? And they won't they won't try to save because they will try to spend money as much as they can. So 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 this will bring me onto another question. If if you're gonna give someone 
a random person a thousand dollars, who would be the most likely to spend it, to spend it all and spend it quickly? Yeah, the the the, the educated person who are used to the the, the lifestyle of a college <laughs> student, right? I'll say the opposite. <laughs> People no, who are I think sorry, say that again, Mike. I was just going to say, I'll say the opposite, where basically the most likely person to spend is someone who doesn't have it and never has had money. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm going to stop trying the Socratic method now, but I think Mike's right. Um, like, generally, poor people will be the most likely to spend any money you give them because they have the most need. Um, people who are college-educated are going to be more likely, in general, to have their own high income and money and, uh, yeah, not really have any need. Like, obviously, if you get, I mean, you think about it, right? Like, you take it to the extremes. You give a multimillionaire $1,000, they're just like, they don't even care. They're like, sure, I'll just pocket it. Like, that's not a big deal for them. But, you know, you give it to someone who's, like, struggling to, like, feed their family. And, you know, they're immediately going to go get their shitty car fixed and buy some groceries and, you know, do something else with it, right? Um, which really attacks the crucial concept of why I think debt cancellation is a just bad idea is because it predominantly goes to people who don't need it. This is not saying there's no one who's poor working class with debt, because obviously there are people like that. But if you just like Google, like who has the most student debt, it's people with more income. And like the people, like the lowest income groups have the least college debt in the US. That's just how it is because poor people are more likely to either go to like community colleges, which are rather cheap, or just not go to college at all. So when it comes to say like helping poor and working class people, you know, in a pandemic or after a pandemic, or when it comes to stimulating the economy, I don't think debt cancellation is the best for either of those. Who, who proposed the debt cancellation of student loans? Well, I know Bernie Sanders was probably the one who made it the most popular in recent mm-hmm. times. I mean, I'm I'm guessing people have suggested it in the past. He could have suggested it 20 years ago. But, like, I mean, he got the idea, certainly at least in 2016, he got it going around a lot. And it's popular on the Internet where there's, like, a lot of, you know, like, middle-class, college-educated millennials who are like, yeah, I want my debt canceled. So they're like, this is the greatest thing ever. But, you know, is it actually the greatest thing ever? It's kind of like, well, sometimes people criticize things like the idea of a UBI, you give everyone money because they're like, oh, you give money to rich people. Why not just give it to poor people, right? Not even to going into that for right now, though. But like, this is like worse than that because you're actually giving more money to wealthier people and then less money to poor people. So it's worse than just like a universal payment to everyone in terms of regressiveness. Yeah, but a lot a lot of these people are not having a debt uh, they are basically they go to school and like, for education, they became teachers, right? Most of these are teachers, right? Try to educate and they, when they get out, they got a job and it's not, they don't, not, they doesn't pay a lot, right? So they are uh, getting into this price, nice, uh, I guess, the vicious cycle of not being able to pay you and then um, having not, having not been paid enough to pay, pay off the loan and they get to get education, right? So I think those are, those, those are one of the, uh, the people are going to be impacted most, right? Yeah, no. So I think an important thing for me to say here is um, I might say like debt can- universal debt cancellation is not a good idea. 
But that doesn't mean we shouldn't address the issue of like student loans and education and stuff like that. So um, what I would propose as like a moderately better idea, I'm sure other people could improve on it more, is there's something called income driven repayment that's already a thing. So when you, for most, almost all federal student loans could qualify for income driven repayment. And what you do is you'll pay 10% of your income that's 10% of your discretionary income, which is defined as your income after 150% of the poverty level. Um, and you will pay that. And after 20 to 25 years, if you haven't paid off all of your debt, it just gets canceled. The leftovers get canceled, removed, and you're free from it. So what this means, so since you're only paying 10% of your discretionary, it means no one's going to be like totally overwhelmed with debt, right? Like you have to pay some, but like you always, you should have enough to survive, right? It's just like, it's there, but it's not crushing. And since it gets removed after 20 to 25 years, even if you don't pay it off, um, it's not one of these like permanent things where you struggle to keep up with payments and you're collecting more interest and you're paying off. And there's like people who've paid their equivalent loan, but because of interest, you know, they still have tons to pay. So that it gets rid of that. And since it's, you know, it's based on a proportion. So the more money you make, the more you pay back, basically. So like someone who ends up really poor makes nothing. They pay little to nothing back on their loan. So that debt is canceled because they don't have income. But people who are really well off, like Michael here, who also has a student loan, you'd have to pay for it because that makes sense. Um, so so you could you could basically flip things so that every federal student loan is income driven repayment, like unless you go through specifically request do some other procedure, right? And since general people who go through college do make more money, most of them will be still paying it back. Um, and then I would say you could also maybe offer something similar, like take the same idea to people who have debt now, right? Who have already taken out the loans, be like, okay, maybe there's a plan where you can transfer over and we look at how much you've paid and how much you were, you know, took out originally and, you know, do some sort of reasonably fair conversion to put them into a similar program so that, yeah, people who can get out, basically it ensures everyone can get out of debt. Like it's a way that everyone will get out of the debt, right? Like you're never going to be stuck with forever, but, you know, and, but you pay how much you can back into it. So if you don't have any income, you don't need to pay? That's right. Because it's, if you are making less than 150% of the poverty line, you will pay nothing. As I yeah. understand it. I'm not an expert in this, but I was reading yeah. about it. One I think time. one thing, I think I read about that too, but the problem with that is that it's very hard to qualify, to apply for. And it's just, there was so much uh, hopes in there and just having like people just having a hard, hard time, like getting through the application process and like getting actually everything, I guess everything government in, implemented heartily, you know, it's really hard to actually get to you, right? Yeah. No. So like, if you look at the website for like the federal government loans things for income driven repayment, like it says like almost everyone qualifies at least at one place, but I agree. It can be hard managing weird bureaucratic stuff, which is why if you make it default, right? Like then you don't have to like jump through bureaucratic hoops to get it. It's just, it's what it is, right? That's what almost people go with the defaults. So you know, that's how people's loans would be. And there so, might be some people who are like, I'm really confident I can pay back my loans fast because I'm going to make a ton of money. And if I like do the other payment plan, maybe, you know, I'll spit, save, end up spending less or whatever overall. But 
you know, if they want to jump through hoops, let them, I guess. But what, I guess, why isn't that that in the first place? Should college just be free? Well, that's, that's a, yeah, I mean, this is a fix that just addresses long-term debt. Like the price of education is obviously a problem that's, you know, would need more, a more complex, harder solution, but like, yeah, even, yeah. So even, even right now, right. I mean, you have like K to 12 free already, right? Why can't you just make four year college free as well? Um, I mean, you could, you could, we could do it like Germany, make the college free, but then you only actually get to go to college if you're a good student with like good test scores and good grades. Right. So I feel like, and I mean, I, I'd be okay with that. That's the only thing I would say is like, there's a trade-off, right? We don't have everyone going to college and college being free. Like the places where college is free have higher standards for entrance. Um, I mean, K-12 is free and everybody goes to K-12. Yeah, but I mean, not everyone needs to go to college. Let's, let's be honest. Even on many of the... We've all been to college, so we all know that many of the people who go to college didn't even need to go, and there's plenty of jobs that don't need anything to do with a college degree. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you want the system to be, you know, if you want to be able to make it affordable and stuff, I don't think you can provide it to literally everyone, at least right now. I mean, why not? You probably want to start with something like the other countries, how they do free college, where it's restrictive, and then maybe you can keep increasing, like, the amount you look you know, if it's working and you have the budget, but I don't think you just start saying everyone goes for free. Of course, you could keep private universities and people could pay and take loans, but it would just be a far, like far smaller amount of people, I guess. That's true. That's absolutely true. Like, yeah, like no one would be like, let's ban private universities. You can't pay. But like, if you want to go to like one of the public schools that are funded by the, you know, stuff, they would have limited slots Mm. And like I said, this is just how it works in the places where college is free, right? Because, you know, it'd be difficult to say literally everyone goes to college for free. I don't think we have enough schools for that right now, at least. Well, well, plus, in a way, it's like if everyone goes to college for free and there isn't there isn't even necessarily like a tiering system, like any kind of like tiers of like schools based on test scores or whatever it's like are we really just essentially going to have like the entire country in like grade school till they're 23? <laughs> so, or I mean, or essentially are we going to have like, Oh, here's four years of like adulting school where people like, I guess live away from their families, but for free just to learn how to be adults. Or so, I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Keeping up with my earlier theme. I don't want to just criticize. Let me suggest a better idea. All right. Income driven with payment better than debt cancellation. Rather than trying to give send everyone to college for free, put that money towards pre-K, early child care. Because I've glanced at some stuff. I've heard at least that like the like investment to benefit of like that early education, like getting kids like in school when they're really young, socializing with teachers is like way more impactful. Because like, I mean, truth be told, by the time most people graduate high school, generally, like whether they're going to be a good student or not, it's kind of already decided, right? Mm. Like they've grown up enough. Very, I don't think many people have like a major turnaround. Um, some people do, but I don't think many people have a major turnaround in like their goals and their aspirations and their personality. 
but like apparently doing that stuff when you're young uh, really impacts kids. So like, you know, kids who went to pre-K and childcare beforehand do better just overall. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, so, that's smart to me. Yeah. That's an interesting proposal. I think, yeah, I think I like that. I mean, kids, they learn a lot, you know, especially when they are younger, right? Much younger. So the, the most impactful thing you can do is start as young as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What do you, what did you hear here in I've just seen like articles and stuff about it. I haven't dug into like the research itself, but the articles at least have claimed that like there's research on it that, you know, the, you know, major impacts for relative and, you know, especially proportional to the money compared to something like college. And again, the thing though is people who want to go to college are voting age or about to be voting age, right? So, mm-hmm. and they're online talking, but it might be smarter policy to focus on basically young children. Oh, uh, okay. So like yeah. free, like basically like rather than free college, free childcare, pre-K. And that also helps parents, especially if you're you know, poor parents, right? Working class parents who are like struggling to like, might not be able to afford, you know, to send their kids somewhere so they can work because, you know, maybe they don't make that much money. So it costs almost as much to have their kid watched as they make in the shift where their kid was watched, right? Yeah. So, Yeah. Apparently, it was something we could look up more, but apparently it's a really good policy, is what I've heard. Yeah, okay. Yeah, wow. I, I actually really like that, actually. I think that's a really good stuff. Maybe you should run for office and implement it. Wow. Give me 20 years before uh, these podcasts sink me, because someone will be like, you know what he said 20 years ago? <laughs> There'll be some progressive issue we haven't even thought of yet. And they'll be like, look how horrible the person was, because he said X, Y, Z in the past. but no i'll just say that research and developmental psychology like i mean has shown like numerous critical periods before the age of five where essentially like like if the kid doesn't get like i mean like language and i mean language gets really bad just beyond 10 and uh you know i mean and obviously like the elasticity of the brain is like insanely uh or the brain is like a insanely elastic like particularly in the first couple of years of life so yeah i guess that it just based on that research is what i'm going on i guess when i say that's a good idea <laughs> so. that's that's why i feel personally i don't even need to go into developmental psychology i guess for me personally i grew up in china i I didn't even have my like, school until I, I don't know six seven years old, my like, first grade. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I guess maybe that's why I always feel like even right now I feel like oh somehow I'm very like almost like I'm a late bloomer in a way, right? For me, it just took a long time for me to realize things and get my brain to think better in a way. And still, I like, try to learn a lot and even a lot of reading stuff. I feel like I'm very behind with all my like, people on my same age, right? So you feel like it just took, took me a long time to really uh, be actually like learn a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, you all probably heard that like reading to your kid when they're young is like one of like has a major impact and like their expected like educational success and from there like how much money they make and stuff. Right. I mean, what is that? But essentially like a proto schooling for like three year olds. Right. Like you sit them down, you show them a book, you read it to them, you know. So like, yeah, I mean, because kindergarten, most, you know, kindergarten starts right about five. So you're like, we're starting school, like right at the kind of the, the end of this, like first most important period 
So yeah, having a, a year or two, even just like a year or two before that consistently of being like, hey, like the kid's gonna get some, you know, exposure, education, you know, just more socializing, more talking and stuff um, probably would do really well. Yeah. Well, I would say just to play devil's advocate a little bit, um, I do wonder in a more public, I guess, setting, I mean, obviously that uh, period is pretty critical for things like empathy development, intimacy with family, um, things like that. So I guess depending on, I guess, how these public things are handled, uh, public schooling uh, setups are handled, like, will that impact, like, negatively people, like, the next generation's empathy or, I guess... Mm feelings so, with family. I so you don't thing, believe in empathy. Yeah, empathy is a necessary thing to Diva. function <laughs> in, in our social world. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've heard you can become president without much empathy, though. I don't know. Hmm. That's fair. Well, I mean, actually, like, Another, I th- I don't even remember if it was one of the psych classes I took at Tech, but yeah, it was uh, like basically they did like uh, the psychopath survey in like CEOs of like Fortune 500 companies. And it's like basically like they, you know, there was a significant difference between like CEOs and like the general population. So. <laughs> Sounds like empathy holds people back, maybe. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, it's, it, it, it is a disadvantage. Max having everyone for success. But yeah, well, like one thing about this early child stuff is you don't make it like required, right? Like if someone wants to stay home with their kid and like, you know, interact and spend time with them, you know, good for them. But especially for people who like, that's difficult for, you know, I would say it's a better option than being like ignored in your house for like a while. Oh, well, yeah, that's fair. I mean, no, particularly like, I mean, I think this is great, particularly for kids who are dealing with sort of like broke like broken households or you know i mean not getting attention or things like that i guess and i guess the counter to me would be like the kids in sort of warm households who are are probably the ones sort of getting read to at this point and having that pseudo education uh without this so mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah so so, yeah. Going, so going back to the debt a little bit what about you're talking about like an in, income-driven agreement, but what about uh, income-share agreement? Oh, is that the thing where people like invest in college students? Exactly. Like, no, not people. I mean, that's a different way of implementing it. Right? But one way of doing it is having people investing. Like, hey, I can give you the funding, but when you get a job, just pay it back, right? So now it's like you almost like let everybody. Almost like human, it became a human capital, right? You basically invest in the people, right? Which is one way of doing it. And the other way is having the school do it, right? So you go to college. My school basically say, hey, you come in tuition free, right? You sign an agreement, but when you get a job, you basically pay back uh, a certain amount of your income, right? So that way, when you go out, you, you, you are not pressured to have to get a job and that you don't like to pay it back in a loan, right? You just like okay, if I the job I want, I can and stop paying back, right? So so basically, you shift the burden onto like school instead of the student individual, and also shift it to like rich investor, right? So mm-hmm. it's interesting because of like the incentives it sets up, yeah. like because either 
Well, if you have like outside investors, they just want to make sure they, you know, loan or whatever. So like, you know, good potential students, but it really motivates a school. Like if the school is burdening you, like it really motivates them to like set up their students for success, at least financially. You could, some people do argue like the purpose of academia is not just to make the most money, but, and then, but like on the flip side, like as a student, you could always be like, oh, I don't have any debt, but most people want to make money. So it's not like you're going to have, I don't imagine you'll have like thousands, just tons of people who are like, ah, fuck you. You know, I don't have to pay this back. I'm going to be poor my whole life. Right. Like most people would be like, yeah, I'll go get some money, mm-hmm. get a job and then, uh, you know, try to pay it back at least. It's an interesting idea. Uh, again, this doesn't fix the cost of education in the first place, but that's, that's an interesting way to um, deal with debt. I guess the, the one issue with those two things potentially is would investors and or schools become too risk averse and then like end up not allowing like even less people to go than we talked about with other things like being like, we're only going to fund like clearly good overachieving students. Um, everyone else get fucked. You know, you don't have your opportunity to try to like get a college degree and go do more. Yeah, that's a that's a fair uh, fair criticism, I think, uh, or caution, right? Because uh, like when the school just start like accepting only engineering students, you know, those like high paying jobs instead of like <coughs> philosophy majors and oh. then educators. And- I didn't even think about it from a major perspective, but you're absolutely right. Like there are known, like, I mean, they have the data, right? Like the average starting salary of like people from different majors, they might, that would encourage institutions to just be like, oh, you want to do this? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. What if they started charging based on the major you were in? <laughs> yeah, that that works too. Actually, yeah, maybe you can have higher percentage of pay getting deducted when you are based on your. I mean, it's it's idea that you the way you implement it could be very different, right? Yeah. Wait, but who's I, more in this situation, though, Mike? What do you mean? Like, I guess if you were a computer science major, like your tuition would be higher. Just because you're more able to pay. Correct. From each, according to their, you know capability or what was it that mark said yeah no i mean i think it's a terrible idea i was just throwing it out there. it just occurred to me when you were like well we have the data on how much people make and i'm like that's true so but it's a tuition is free anyway so you cannot do it based on tuition right you can only based on like how much you pay in the end like how more, maybe you can charge like get more percentage of the pay based on your income well i was even thinking well, of the current system right because i mean in theory they i think like i mean in theory the colleges could argue like i mean a computer science education at any college is literally worth more than an english education at basically any college so yeah that that help out teachers because a lot of their that help out teachers too but i don't know if i do kind of like the idea though that students can go to school and kind of like pick and change their major as they see fit. I feel like that's a good freedom because, you know, not everyone jumps in the thing they want the most. And then what? Then they're like, ah, oh, shit. Like if I'm changing my major, like my tuition payments change, like is every class, by, like does every class have a cost that's like broken down? So if you want to take like an elective of computer science, it's really pricey because it's like, oh, you know, all computer science courses are pricey. Like, 
Yeah, no, I mean, there would definitely be details. And I, you know, I understand college is supposed to be about discovery, but, and is it? that's why I say, well, I mean, that's what they tell me. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. That's but it sounds like, so what, what's the purpose of college then is, is discovery. Like, what do you pay like 30,000 a year to, to do discovery? And that sounds like a luxury to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we say pay back your lunch. <laughs> so that's, uh, what's the purpose of college? I mean, it's both the things you mentioned earlier. It's to fundamentally learn more, become educated, and it's also to be able to be like, get a good paying job, like advance your professional career. But like, I took a sociology class, okay? One sociology class, and they broke down students into different categories. Um, so there's like the genuine academics who like are there to learn. There's like the social people who are there to like basically have fun. There's people who are just motivated purely by like career. They just want to get a better job. And then they had athletes as their own category, which is obviously the smallest, um, you know, people who, um, you know, are just there because they're like trying to play football or something. But I actually forget it was, if the social category wasn't the biggest, it was close. It might've been the biggest one that like a huge chunk of students are actually just at college basically to have fun and to party to like meet people and do stuff like motivations of getting a job or learning are secondary to them yeah so that exists and uh yeah well well let's say uh okay so having the experience and also job replacement right it's the like let's say you know like maybe half half right 50 percent of the school should be uh, focused on getting an experience and the other one train student have job right how however one thing is the the most of the college they don't focus on job placement, right? That's if you look at each each school's like career centers, right? That's probably only like one less than one percent of resources are allocated to job placement, right? So so they don't like like for example, Mike. Now, how did you get your job? Did you have to? I think you hire a recruiter or something. No, I got contacted by the company, but uh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I did go use career services. Like, I did go to career. But uh, did I, you find it very useful? No, uh, no. I mean, I had offers in hand when before they That's were it. super useful. So yeah, yeah. So, so I guess, uh, I guess, uh, my wife hers, and I, you know, the college, you know, most of them, they don't, they don't allocate the resource properly to to help students get jobs, right? They just have like allocate one, almost like they don't focus on that. I, and the income share agreement is one way to incentivize them to maybe put more resource into like job placement for students right yeah. all right counter argument is job placement the purpose like is that really the purpose of the university because i guess my perspective would have been like universities help students get jobs by giving them education and experience and setting them up to be like qualified candidates and then so people can get the jobs themselves like, like, is I mean, is a college supposed to like handhold you into your first job essentially? Because that's never really been how it's done, at least in this country, right? Well, yeah. No, otherwise, I mean, you, I mean, it's an investment, right? You pay thirty thousand dollars a year to go to college, right? I mean, well, what do you expect? Do you just not go there as a luxury to to enrichment, right? No, you otherwise, go to, you, you you go there to learn and to get a degree so that you have the knowledge and the credentials to actually like apply to these jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Although, yeah. And then, and honestly, if you really want like a guaranteed job out of college, like almost everyone who did like internships and co-ops and things like that seem to like have easy job opportunities when they're ready to leave. Mm. And I know at least a lot of, I know at least a good chunk of colleges try to encourage that stuff. So, but like, yeah, but like even ignoring that, right? Like if a college gives you the knowledge and the qualifications, is that like a not enough? I would say, yeah. I mean, because a student can get into different, do other things that distract them from whatever, you know, the, actually the getting a job, right? So, I mean, well, I, 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 I guess, uh, I guess in responsibly, you shift every honor responsibly to, to the student instead of like, so that's why you end, people end up with a lot of debts of not, not being able to pay off student loans, right? Because uh, they get into a major, they just go there to have fun. But when they graduate, right, they realize, oh shit, I need to pay, pay off all these loans. But the school doesn't have the incentive to say, hey, we need to get you a job so you can pay off the loan, right? It's, it's like, you, you put everything in, on the responsibility on the students, right? So instead of, I mean, if, if it's a business, like if you see like school as a business, because you pay that money to go there, right? And to have, you want certain good outcome, right? But the school is not incentivized to do that in a way. You're, you're right. This would change the school's incentives. But I mean, so like with the setup right now, the school is, I would argue the school did their job, right? Like if someone wants to pay for a degree that, you know, and the school gives them the classes, teaches them, gives them the degree. The school fulfilled its obligation, I would argue. Mm. And, you know, you go to college as an adult. Like, 18-year-olds aren't entirely stupid. I mean, they might not be the most mature, but, like, you know, 18-year-olds know what money is, right? Like, I think they, they can and should understand that, like, you know, hey, you're going to have to pay this off, you know. Like when you, when you take career counseling, like they always talk, at least I, I had it, I, I did public schools in Louisiana. So this is not the cream of the crop when it comes to, you know, high school education and even our career services, you know, they do these dumb personality tests and be like, oh, these are the things you might fit. And then they talk about like expected, you know, how much you, these things usually make, you know, and they would like, you know, not in super detail, but they bring up the concepts of like, hey, you know, if you're looking at college careers, you know, money's part of the equation. So I don't feel like how you go to college and be like, oh, I just forgot I had to like pay back these loans, right? Like that's on you. If someone wants to pay for a fun time, quote unquote, I don't hold it against them, but yeah. Well, to be fair, everybody's not naive, right? So <laughs> a lot of people are not as uh, adult as you. So actually, we're talking about the career counseling. I never had that counseling when I was in high school. So Really? They never did anything like, here's what careers you might be good for, anything like uh, that? No. Did you, Matt? Did you, Mike? My school wasn't great. Because I actually went to, a again, public school, but Massachusetts, so that's a different ballgame. But, um, I mean, and to be fair, I think the education, again, was, like, probably on the higher end. But, yeah, the, the I guess, counseling, guide, like, guidance counselor type staff was not necessarily the strongest. So they uh, maybe had, like, one meeting with us where they were – talked about college and thinking about loans and career, but it was not at all extensive, but I mean, but I, 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 I sort of am on Matt's side though, but it's very hard for me to say, like, if you couldn't make that decision at eight, like, I mean, you should have some 
awareness at 18. Like, I, I mean, granted, just maybe it's because I grew up in a family, like, where money was an issue. Like, I was very cognizant of, like, choose wisely at that point. But, yeah, yeah. that's, yeah, but it's a different situation. Yeah, I guess my point is I just want school to have a little bit more incentive to get people you know, some good jobs, right? Because they're not allocating enough resources to do that anyway. Yeah. yeah. But I, yeah. We, I, we, I do think that's certainly a reasonable thing. And you could maybe even like a milder solution might be like, you know, federal grants or stuff. Maybe they're like, hey, we want to see like, or even like accreditation be like, hey, if not enough of your students are like actually getting jobs, like, that being like a metric that's used to evaluate schools and say, hey, like, are you doing something wrong if you're graduating a, like a lot of people who are failing to like, you know, do something afterwards successfully, but. I feel like it is already. Cause I mean, like my undergrad will send endless emails about like how it's like one of the top ranked schools in the nation with respect to like return on investment and all that type of you know so I, I mean i think certainly forbes and the princeton review and all of them have are incorporating that so that's good all right oh, they're ahead of us <laughs> yeah. all right. i guess we can talk about that forever but yeah so let's uh shift gear to mike's uh anything else mike you want to talk about like your psychology article about fear stuff. So this article talks about like how, so like you're going into a meeting at work and uh, obviously you get anxious or you get fearful and particularly people who have, you know, maybe more difficult jobs or something uh, or more, you have to deal with more difficult bosses or something. We'll get this like anxiety that back, you know, in 2000 BC, someone would get when they're, you know, being stalked by like, you know, uh, some carnivorous animal in like a jungle or something. And I mean, I guess they're like, basically, I mean, you need your heart rate to increase. You need your, uh, like, basically to produce and I guess give off more hormones and sweat and everything else to give you the best chance of surviving in that moment, right? So... Basically, now we're getting that going into like a stressful work meeting, which is obviously we don't need that type of response to survive. And so, uh, and obviously it's damaging. I mean, when your body is in that highly active state, it can be damaging of your heart if it's occurring frequently. So I guess the point of this article was like, so... neuroscientists uh, basically found so the activation of the amygdala which long been pointed to as the area of the brain associated with fear um, but there it was sort of co-active with this area uh, that uh, interacts with the thalamus which is going to communicate things to sort of the rest of your body like control heart rate and stuff and basically their point was like okay like maybe if you have these learned fear memories, maybe there's a way we can essentially like, I don't want to say cut off, but like not, not permanently, obviously, but like cut off these, um, the connection between this and that area of the brain that's associated with, or largely associated with movement and uh, interacts with the thalamus to essentially like not make you experience like the, 
like lived anxiety of like those meetings, right? So it's like, I mean, you may, so there may, I mean, I don't know how your conscious experience would change, but basically like uh, make you, and I mean, there's similar findings in pain and things like that. So people literally, like when it comes to like, if you cut your hand or something, there's people who have had insults to their brain where essentially like they're aware their like hand is badly cut, but they don't, it like, it doesn't bother them. They're just like, oh, my hand's bleeding like crazy. Like they're aware of where the cut is, but they don't experience like the dread you get when you see yourself like injured. And that's because like of an insult to like their insular, insular cortex. So, um, so I guess I, I was curious in getting what you guys think about like, I guess taking potentially chemical agents to facilitate this or uh, yeah, just general impressions. So, so, so basically you want to targeted smart lobotomies to certain parts of the brain to get rid of undesirable, you know, emotions. Is that one way to phrase it? That's a, yes. Well, I mean, that's actually what this art, like at the end, this article suggested essentially that. And I was like, I was like, I'm all for it. Once we understand how the brain works, in which case I don't even know if anxiety will be an issue because we'll just be on computers probably at that point. <laughs> yeah, like the amygdala, if I said that right, it's like yeah. I'm, I imagine it might do something else important besides like your fear response. So I don't know if either nuking it or nuking its connections to other parts of the brain might have <laughs> bad side effects. Right. Yeah. I mean, I often think of it as like antidepressants, right? It's like, hey, we don't really understand depression fully, but like, and I mean, granted, they definitely work for some people in like anti-anxiety meds and they're getting better and better, but it's like, basically we see essentially a slow, lower amounts than serotonin and certain individuals are depressed versus other people. So we're just going to like throw a pill to make sure there's more serotonin and see what happens. I mean, in a way, I feel like this would be like, hey, you have an anxiety before a meeting. We're going to like try to throw a pill to like shut down this area of your brain for a couple of hours. So, yeah. Is, is that what they're really suggesting? I don't remember reading that in the end of the article. And they were suggesting like taking some kind of chemical to do. I feel like every time I have a meeting with someone like sometimes performs review, right? It's very, very normal to get an like, anxious hope. Is it gonna, am I going to be criticized? Like, having like bad feedback, right? Of, like from other people, right? Or people maybe thinking I'm, my boss is thinking I'm doing a very bad job, even though maybe I do a good job, right? So I feel that's, that's kind of normal. I feel like it sounds like you're suggesting a very dramatic measure for something that's not really... Well, you know, I... Well, we've been talking about, I guess, when you get out of college and you take a job you might not want or something to that effect. I mean, I guess, like, they're talking about people who just essentially every day they feel, like, anxious or, like, uh, some type of, like, oppression, like, emotionally, like, disturbed based on their job. So basically, like, every day they're dealing with, something that goes beyond just like oh I'm a little nervous and it's not or like I guess like some there's some maybe baseline anxiety isn't bad it's just I mean it's well shown that like I mean increases in cortisol which come from stress like damage your heart over time like if it's significant enough 
So, uh, yeah. So I guess basically it's those people who it's like where they're actually getting like sort of hyperventilating before meetings or something like that. Gotcha. Or getting so, very, very stressed. Mm. So I would suggest uh, with my profound medical knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and then, uh, instead of doing that, have you heard of something called stoicism? The word? The stoic, <laughs> yeah, the stoic philosophy. Stoic for thousands philosophy. of years. Yeah, Matt, can you explain that? <laughs> I was saying, yes, I've heard of it. Uh, stoic stoicism it's uh you know it's basically suck it up in philosophy form right yeah kind of in a way it's back in the day like uh like marcus aurelius right uh he's the roman emperor he's he he could be considered one of the stoic philosopher and also seneca right uh on these roman like ancient uh philosophers and they talk about like basically Treated basically almost like very similar to Buddhism, kind of in a way, like kind of like, oh, life is suffering. You kind of need to experience like actually right way of say, okay, this is normal, right? This is what life is in a way, right? Think about it, like frame it that way. And also, he even suggested that every once in a while, right, we should, I think Seneca and I suggested once in a while, you need to, even though we are living very comfortable, comfortable life, right? Every once in a while, while you should like, maybe one week or one day, try to uh, put yourself in a situation where almost like uh, you are living in destitute, right? Maybe only eat like a bread or eat uh, every day for a week or something and even wear like dirty clothes, like homeless people, right? So live like that for like a week or something, right? So basically to, uh, to have to, to make you feel experience that like what's the worst case that could happen? Like what happened if this happened, you lose all your money, right? It's like, once you experience it, it's like, oh, you still survive. It's not too bad, right? So it's a way to guard against like, your anxiety almost in a way, right? So anyway, next, uh, so maybe you should look into stoicism. <laughs> yes, well, uh, no, I mean, the perspective, I think it can be very important. I mean, I, I mean, I think the simple solution is, you know, if your job is literally going to kill you, then leave it. But, um, but I guess it's easier anyway, said than done. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we we, we probably I gonna probably talk bring bring up more a little bit more stories and stuff once I read more about it. So it's yeah. it's pretty cool stuff, interesting stuff. Yeah. That'd be cool. Is that gonna be your new philosophy in life? Maybe. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Choose yeah. philosophy of the month. <laughs> that could so, be yeah. a topic. What? That could be like a repeated segment on this podcast. Choose yeah, philosophy yeah. of the month. Exactly. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> so, uh, I guess a lot of few things. I, the startup idea I was talking about, like, what do you think about YouTube for voice? Like, uh, you should just have a non-audio video version. I've actually wanted this specifically, but, yeah. well, first of all, isn't YouTube for voice just podcasts? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yes, it is, but remember, right, right now, like we have to pay even for this podcast, we have to pay monthly fee to like uh, to host our podcast right in a somewhere server right like ten dollar a month or something like that. But you can upload like videos to YouTube like unlimited without there's no you don't need to pay for anything right. So why 
why why there's not there's no such thing for voice like for voice creator and like create could be podcast but podcast is a format right but maybe there's some creative people that create something a diff, whole different format for an entertainment right so anybody can just upload audio so yeah yeah no it makes sense i i think there is a a niche that's not fully like captured but I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's small enough that it'd be really hard to find the space between just uploading to YouTube anyway and doing a podcast. Like, cause you, I, there are people who upload videos to YouTube. That's like a still shot image at a low yeah. resolution resolution. And then they just talk. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've listened to stuff like that before. And then I've been annoyed that YouTube doesn't have an option just to like be like no video, just audio, save us exactly. both the bandwidth. Like, yeah. I feel like that could be a simple feature they could add. I'm guessing the issue is they don't want to deal with audio-only advertisements, and they might just be, like, you know, like having a new brand of advertisements to fulfill might not be worth it for them, but I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, no, I mean, I was thinking of more of the advertisement angle sort of as well, uh, just as a, I mean, because often these podcast apps, they won't, uh, I mean, th- some of them will have ads sort of built in, like between podcasts or something, and they often have a visual component as well. But I mean, it, it seems as though it's often like when it comes to audio, like they're making money from the content creator, whereas like visual, uh, I guess, uh, visual companies or companies that use visuals are often making money from the content consumer. Back in like the 20th, 20, you know, 20th century, there's something called radio. And, What's radio? Uh, that, that is fair. Yes. What is radio? I actually do listen to Sirius XM, which has reads. So, yeah. So, so I think, so I think your point is good. However, I'm not talking about how to make money from that right now. I'm talking about, like, is this thing going to be useful? Is it going to be add value to people? Like, is it, do people want this, right? It's not about how to, how to put ads in there. Those are going to be down in the line later in the future. But I'm going to say, like, is this going to be useful to people? Will people want this, right? All right. Here's how, here's how I would analytically think about this. Does it provide a benefit? Yes. But there's also a cost to using a new website or service. Like, it's made, I might feel more annoyed about it. Like, it's always annoying to me when I have to like use a new website or sign up for something new or go to someplace different, download a new app, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like it's more convenient to use what I already have set up. And I might be more resistant to new things in that regard than most people just because I hate downloading apps and things like that. But the benefit of like a slightly different audio format versus like the cost of like getting people to sign up and learn about a new thing. I feel like the cost outweighs like there's more, headache for the little bit of like advantage is it little or a lot of advantage little so, so right now i think you're only thinking about okay just it's almost like a youtube just an audio version of youtube however once you create that platform you know it depends on what people create right you don't know what people are going to create right it could be something that yeah, of course it could be just a feature like youtube feature of audio but however i think you have potential to to, you know, people's creativity is unlimited, right? Almost in a way. So, I mean, you don't know what people are going to create, right? So, that, I mean, that's, 
That's true. And I'm not, I'm not doubting the ability for people to create interesting audio content. Um, it's just that there's nothing that they could create that they couldn't either put in you on YouTube or a podcast already. So you're the, what the value that this is adding is a slightly different way to get, you know, send people audio to listen to. Right. But there's already a lot of ways to do that. But podcast as I, Podcast, not everybody can do that, right? It's only because you need to pay monthly. You know, normal people is not going to take a uh, record voice or create a voice content and just upload to the podcast because they have to pay for it, right? It's not, you want to make it easy for users just to, like YouTube, it's very easy to create a voice content and upload it, right? Yeah. I mean, I agree. I would argue anyone who's going to be like doing something really that amazing with audio content would probably be okay with like the 10 bucks a month that you have to pay. And again, YouTube is free. You can just put a slap a picture in for the video. Okay. You're really like just like a broke, you know, 13 year old who has a great idea. So, okay. so like that's what I'm saying. Like it's not. I, again, I, I see where this could be potentially sl- somewhat more convenient. It's just, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's enough there. Hmm. Not that's to be a Debbie Downer on your idea. No, that's good. That's why. That's why. It's good when you are attacking an idea, right? You have to attack an idea, right? Yeah. Oh, I had a startup idea, but I'm not going to say it on recording. But if y'all want, we can close this podcast out and I'll tell you it's genius. Okay. All right. For me, ideas actually is, uh, ideas should be free and anybody can take it. I, I want, if any, if someone going to create this and then make it into an idea, that's perfect. That means I don't need to do it myself, right? And also... And that's one thing. The other thing is about, I believe it's about execution, right? Because even if you have a good idea, it's education. It's like, idea is probably only like 0.01% of the whole thing, right? No. Yeah. I agree with that. Often the execution is much more important than the idea. There's, there's rarely do people have truly original ideas. Usually the first yeah, big yeah. breakthrough or innovation is just someone executing it better, right? Yeah, even Google, right? He's, he's not, he's not in the 10th search engine, right? And Facebook is like, what, in the third or fourth or tenth uh, social network? Amazon was not the first online store, you know, things like that. What's the first one? Well, I mean, there were other just like websites selling brands. Oh, yeah. Day was a good example of like a general store that like allowed sellers to come on. I mean, eBay had a different vision and it's still uh, successful, yeah. but clearly yeah. it's not Amazon successful, you know? All right. So... If there's anything else, I want to end with a question. You know, a question on there, right? Uh, there's a question I heard last week. Is I feel like, and it's for me. I really like the question. Like, what would you do? What would you stop doing if you have only ten years to live? You lead off, Shu. Yeah. Oh, I will stop. Working on my PhD. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's not, and that's no, that's, that's no one thing I talk about. It's like, dang, I really need to stop working on my PhD. <laughs> like, even though, even though I'm, I'm down into my final chapter, right? And then I'm going to spend another maybe the next six months, uh, three months, uh, yeah, six months to finish and defend it. But if I only have 10 years to live, this is like, point you know five percent of my lifetime i is it worth it right you know so yeah so i'll definitely stop 
working on my PhD and do something else. Yeah. See, that's an interesting insight because I could see other people saying, you know, maybe that's one of the things they would want to make sure they like they do that accomplishment, right? But it it kind of tells us it tells us what you how you value your PhD, right? Like, do you see yeah. that as a significant accomplishment, something you want to finish, or is it just something like you've been doing and you're just like, oh yeah, like if I don't have time, I'm just gonna say forget it. Mm. So. I mean, that's probably the purpose of the question, right? Just to kind of prioritize like, okay, like what's really important to you if you knew like you didn't have an enormous amount of time left and to, you know, tell you be like, maybe that's what you should be focusing on anyway, but. Yeah. It's hard. You usually think of these questions as what would you do as opposed to what would you not or stop doing rather. Mm. I don't know. It might motivate me to like be less, you know, maybe a little less distracted, like with internet and games and other stuff. I might probably would cross my mind more be like, Hey, you know, like I don't have like forever, you know, it'd make you face that mortality to be like, I should really do the things I want to do. But I don't, I don't think I would change too much because 10 years isn't super short. And overall, I still think I'm kind of going towards the goals that I'd want to continue doing anyway. And there's nothing that's like more than 10 years out that I'm trying to work on right now. So <laughs> no, that's, that's good. Fair. It's kind of a boring answer, but no, I mean, it's a, it's a valid answer right now. An answer can change over time. Right. I think the asking a question, like to me, a lot of times asking a question is not, it's kind of frame your thinking differently. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we all we're probably, I don't know, more, goal-driven people, you know, Mm. I just assume anyone who tries to do a PhD is more already accustomed to, like, setting and doing long-term goals. I feel like, yeah, now, if you're you're already, like, naturally, you tend to, like, do the goals, set goals and work towards them, that's probably what would, you know, probably Mm. won't change too much. Yeah. Unless you're going to die before you can achieve those goals. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but you are right. It's, it's more like help you like prioritize stuff in your life, right? So yeah. yeah. All right. What about what about you, Mike? Have you talked about anything? Oh no. Uh, I mean, I don't. I feel like, I mean, I had a punchline answer that I was gonna go with, and then uh, what? Oh, and I say, oh, okay, good. Oh yeah, no. I mean, my punchline answer was I'd stop wearing condoms. So, but. Uh, <laughs> Nice. <laughs> but uh, I, I was, I was actually like, trying to take it somewhat seriously because I uh, uh, basically, I, don't, I mean, I just don't, like, I, I, I'd like to think, I mean, as Matt says, like, 10 years is long enough where it's like, I'd like to think, like, I'd stop, I guess, like, I guess moderating my behavior so much like I'd, I'd be able to live more freely and stop worrying about like work but as Matt says like 10 years is a pretty long time like you're still like you're not going to want to like if you go like six months it's like okay at that point like it's pretty quit much over job. yeah exactly quit your job da, da, da. but it's like 10 years it's like you probably want to keep working you want to make sure your family is taken care of as best you can at least till sort of and you're not homeless for nine years <laughs> So, I mean, but yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that you'd at least stop, I guess, uh, I guess you could at least say stop worrying 
like, so we discussed the anxiety thing before. So, like, essentially, you know you only have 10 years left, like, say, like, I'm not going to worry about, you know, the meeting on Monday morning, because yeah. it doesn't, doesn't matter. Like, worst yeah. case, like, I am dead in nine plus years anyway, so. <laughs> Use an existential crisis to counteract other forms of anxiety and issues, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I no longer care about these things that give me stress because I'm soon going to be dead, cease to exist, and no one will remember me. Yeah. You know, and then you're at peace, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Rob Schneider actually, I think, talked about, like, he had some guru or something. They were essentially, that was it. Like, anytime you're having, like, an anxiety episode about something, like, material in the world, the guy was like, just think, you're going to be dead soon. It won't matter. <laughs> I was like, that's, it works, but it's, like, I feel like that's just asking to foster some more profound anxiety, like, deep-rooted anxiety, so. It's like, uh, you know, yeah, it's like, my broken finger hurts, let's cut it off, like, is this the best solution? It kind of helps. Yeah, I guess it helps, well, I mean, the finger cutting off doesn't necessarily even help in the moment, but maybe the anxiety thing, like, might help in the moment, but, like, I think over time, it would probably just cause more damage. All right. I think that's a, that's a pretty good place to for this for today. Memento Mori, I guess. That's the place to end. Yeah. All right. All Next right. week, I put in a thing. We're going to talk about Jeff Bezos trying to put a woman on the moon. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my contribution. All right. Stay tuned. It's going to be very exciting. Chill out, club.